0: Hello, and welcome to The Nature Connection Science, Wildlife, and Environment Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Nature Connection Show. You know, we air this show every fourth Friday and then some because we love nature and nature is the backbone of our society, really. And uh, we do this show uh, with our friend Marco Carrera. She is an amazing nature and wildlife photographer. You can see her work at Carrera Fine Art Gallery.com. And she is part of what we do. You know, Nancy and I travel the country on our Love Your Parks tour full-time documenting parks and public lands. But we also want to talk about Uh, nature and wildlife, not just in our country, but around the world, and we focus on uh, what's climate change, what we can do to mitigate that, what are the effects of climate change on wildlife, and what happens when we lose wildlife, how does that affect us as society? So we're excited to welcome Dr. David Scheel on the show today, he's a professor of marine biology at Alaska Pacific University, it's apparently like he has full sunshine, I think, that's what I've heard. He's a field-oriented ecologist, and he has experience in remote and wilderness settings in Africa and Alaska. Very cool. He is joining us to talk about his new book. It's called Many Things Under a Rock, The Mystery of Octopuses. Oh, we've all heard how cool octopuses are, so very excited about this uh, conversation. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sheol. How are you?
1: I'm, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it.
0: Oh, we love it. And welcome back, Margo. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. And I'm so interested in this topic. Uh, I I watched a movie once about an octopus. I think it's called My Octopus Teacher. And I was blown away at how amazing they are. And uh, can't wait to hear what you have to say, sir.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, Dr. Shield. one thing I wanted to touch on is I know you've done work in Africa studying wildlife as, as like lions as predators. And so then you go to octopus. So an octopus, let's kind of look at that species in regards to the web of life of the ocean. Can you kind of tell us why you decided octopus? Do we Should we look at them as predators in the water? Because I think we all kind of go... The shark is the big key predator. Don't get in the water. the shark's gonna get you. You know what I mean so when we look at species in regards to the web of life and in, in the marine system, where should we look at an octopus and what got you started to study them
1: yeah uh well i did I did start with um African lions and uh I think of myself still as a predator prey biologist um and I think octopuses are kind of a, a nice species in that space because they're in that, they're in that liminal role where they're both predators and prey in between. Mm-hmm. And so they have to cope with both sides of that equation. At the same time, the species up here in Alaska is the giant Pacific octopus. It's the largest octopus species in the world. They can reach sizes over a hundred pounds and, um, and they are uh, at least potentially, uh, you know, a risk for large animals in the sea. Um, and so, mostly they eat and and hunt crabs and uh, clams and other bivalves. But mm-hmm. I have had stories of them um, uh, killing seabirds on occasion, and uh, someone even once told me about one that uh, drowned a dog.
0: Oh my gosh, this is crazy! Mm-hmm. But they're smart, aren't they? Because I mean, I've heard things like in aquariums, while they where they've kind of tried to trick a an octopus, and an octopus could get out of like a they've tried to trick him like in a like a shelter kind of thing, and can they get out of this little box kind of thing? And they could. Um, so it seems that they they have a bigger brain that we may that we may not realize
1: any sort of crevice, I think, is interesting to an octopus um, because they forage uh, in the nooks and crannies of the underwater world. And um, anything that's loose is also kind of interesting because of course, their food adheres to the rock. Um, mm. But otherwise it might be uh, it might be very hard uh and and seemingly not a food item but underneath that shell might be might be good nutrition and so I, I think they have this propensity to um explore crevices and to um uh worry anything that uh jiggles right anything that has some motion in it and so if you're one of those uh creatures of the world predisposed to look in the crannies and worry anything that moves. You're going to you're going to be very curious and um, very investigative.
0: So, where are they? In you know, I understand what you're saying that they can be predator and prey, right? So, in that in that zone in the web of life. So, when we look at that in regards to the hum- humans, because that's where I always kind of go. So, I because I want people to understand that connection that if we lose a species. How does it affect humans? Because sometimes we forget that. We're like, don't build on this land because there's an important frog species. And people go, dude, it's just a frog. Like, who cares? There's frogs around the corner, you know, in the back of my house. We don't care over here. Yet there's a specific frog that is endemic to that one meadow, right? So so what? We've got frogs back here. We don't care about the frogs there. What does that mean to humanity? so I want to say that about octopus. What is, I mean, I know people eat octopus. I personally don't, I'm allergic to fish and shellfish and everything like that. But, um, and I don't think I want to eat an octopus personally. I don't know. But like other than the food source, how important is an octopus to human beings?
1: Well, there's so many different ways to, to even approach that question. I mean, the thought of I know it's
0: weird, but it's, you know what I mean? It, it is, that happens, right? It's like, hey, we're going to take over this area. Octopuses are out, humans are in, but like, why? We, we should take yeah. care of them, you know? Yeah.
1: Well, I'll tell you one of the animals to me are are really enriching in the world. And so, you know, yes, it, it's a tragedy when a species is lost, but it's a, a smaller tragedy when habitat is lost. And so, you know, I don't, I don't want to think about an ocean in which I know somewhere there is one last remaining area where giant Pacific octopuses, for example, are safe. I want to think about an ocean in which I can fall into the water anywhere in that animal's historical range and have some odds, some anticipation, some excitement that I might um, get to see one going about her way. Uh, you know, one of the great joys of, of diving in Prince William Sound is mm-hmm. that I got to explore this sort of part of Alaska. I won't say it's untouched; it's absolutely not untouched. Um, you know, it's been it's been fished and it's been um, it's been motored over and investigated and influenced by uh, pollution and oil spills and uh, you know climate change and and all the other things that humans uh, leave their mark on the planet with. But at the same time. These are little uh, patches of the world that humans don't visit very often. And so I could drop down onto, um, you know, uh, a seamount, you know, um, five or Mm. 10 fathoms down and be surrounded by uh, lingcod and um, uh, black rockfish that haven't ever maybe seen a person before or maybe only very, very rarely. And wow. you know, these guys are four foot, five foot long fish, a cod, and then come swimming up to you. Y- you could almost reach out and pet them. And then oh. all around you is all this uh diversity in the ocean, uh, rockfish mm. and uh uh the lingcod and smaller fishes and then all of the invertebrates. And you know, you come over a small rise and you you enter a little sort of bowl uh in the in the Uh, rock where some, the currents have created a little enclave of sand there. And right on the edge of that, uh, you know, you can come across the little octopus in her den. Um, Mm. It's just a a magical environment. And, you know, I want a world in which we find those animals around us Um, Mm -hmm. in the terrestrial realm. I, I walk to work every day here in Anchorage, Alaska, and I walk through um you know a trail system that is still wooded and still uh, you know semi-natural and I, I like to to go every every morning by the lake and sometimes I see otters at play and sometimes I see Aww. uh you know um uh um oh I'm gonna miss the name now red-throated red-throated grebes uh on Aww. their neck or courting and you know Aww. this is this is just, it's part of my life. And I'd hate to be in a world that was deprived of that kind of wildlife.
0: I think you bring this huge point up that isn't discussed, which is seeing wildlife makes us happy. You know, we we were just in Iowa, um, Makotica, and I'm saying that because I, it took me a long time to learn how to pronounce it. And uh, we were taking care of a property for a lady and she had uh, Baltimore Baltimore Orioles, which were, you know, amazing to watch and see them with going in the pond and fountain and just having a ball. And, you know, then we saw a red-breasted grosbeak beak. And mm. I literally, like, I don't, I, I I can't say what came out of my mouth because I got so excited. Like it, it was the opposite of road rage, excitement, but the words were like excited because <laughs> I, I actually immediately, this is how weird it was. I thought it was a trogon, And then I had to remember I'm not in Arizona anymore because of the markings. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what is this bird? It's beautiful. It has this red, you know, breasted, uh, or rosy breasted, um, uh, red or rosy breasted grosbeak, and It was amazing. And all day long, I don't care what was going on with deadlines and people and whatever. I was like, I saw this grosbeak. I've never seen this. It's the most beautiful bird. And then I'm seeing an oriole and then the, you know, the robins and I'm sorry, I love robins and the happiness. I mean, I think there is something that we do need to connect with in that nature makes us happy to be around because it's very humbling and it makes us realize that there's this huge system out there of all kinds of critters that are beautiful and all kinds of characters and, you know, different looks like all like dogs, right? I mean, dogs are the best too, you know, and it doesn't matter how per se, like it could be a big bulldog. And some people say, Oh, they're ugly. No, they're not. They're cute. You know, I'm going to play with their big, you know, lips and, jowls and you know i don't care if they drool if they're cute you know so there's something about that i think that it sparks the the little kids in us wouldn't you i want to go to marco on that because you're a photographer too isn't isn't it the oh, beauty yeah. of nature that really makes you happy and you want that with your photography right is that happiness
2: yeah and it's the fascination i, I noticed the fascination in your book that you had for these creatures and and it brought me back to when I was a child. Um, I used to go with my father. He had a boat and we'd go down to the dock and sometimes he'd work on his engine <laughs> and more than take us out. So I, I'd get, um, on the dock and I'd find the area where the clams were growing. Right. And I remember sitting there just uh, studying the clams and, and along comes this little baby uh octopus, and you know I was just a child, but I just went and picked it up in my hand, and it just you know, it just moved around in my hand and I was just so fascinated with this octopus and and of course i I put it back on the on the post. I'm sure it was going after the clowns <laughs> but um uh, yeah, we have a fascination also. With animals, their behavior and you know their they don't look like what we see on land um, you know they are. and so there's so many amazing fish in the sea that we've yet to discover um it's just um it's a fascination that I think as humans we have um for other species mm. yeah.
1: Yeah and, yeah, and baby octopuses are are just absolutely adorable, um, <laughs> you know. And and there's something very uh, captivating in the way an octopus moves because their bodies are so different from ours. They, uh, you know, they their limbs lack joints. Their movements are very fluid. Uh, they're very different in the layout of the body from the animals we're more familiar with. And if you think about it, these these animals that we think about most of the time, right? Dogs and cats, the apes, dolphins and fish, Mm. birds, they're all vertebrates. They all are very related and they all are laid out on pretty much the same body plan. Um, And octopuses are different right? They break Mm -hmm, all of those mm -hmm. rules. Their mouths are underneath them, not in front of them. Their arms Mm -hmm. lie in a circle around the mouth. And so we we call them arms, but really, if you think about it, what is the organ that is around your mouth and helps you manipulate food? The arms of an octopus are really, in some ways, prehensile extended lips. They use suckers, Mm -hmm. not jointed fingers or toes mm-hmm. to manipulate things and so they're just a very different way of um of being in the world and yet because they have to be in the same world that we're in because they have to share the same physical reality we have these deep commonalities with them and it it creates a very um a very interesting and captivating recognition but a recognition with differences. And that mm. uh, is, is very engaging.
0: Mm. It, I I find them fascinating. And I, you know, I did a lot of snorkeling as a kid in Mombasa and in, in Kenya. And like, you, you'd see moray eels. You had to watch out for urchins and all kinds of stuff. Like there, these, we had, um, I think there were tiger sharks. You may know better than me on that. And, but to me, this was like, I mean, even a movie can't touch it to me going underwater. Mm-hmm. And seeing all these, whether they you should be scared of them or not, I, I wasn't taught to be scared. I was taught to, you know, this can harm you if you do this. You know what I mean? This is how you must behave. It's like going into someone's house, right? You don't go into someone's house and put your feet up on their coffee table with your dirty shoes. You don't do that. And so I was kind of raised that way. Like you're in their house, you're part of their house because we're all part of this house, but this is their specific place. So if you act this way, you could get hurt. You know what I mean? Because they're telling you no, kind of thing. And so I had this healthy respect of don't don't be stupid, be nice. But it's so you didn't have this fear literally. You had awe. And I mm-hmm. I can't get past what I experienced as a kid seeing that. And I think I'm always chasing it. You know know what I mean? Like people with drug addiction, they're always chasing the next high. That's how it is for me in regards to seeing these creatures that you just, it's like, how do you survive underwater? Isn't that part of it too? I mean, you've got this beautiful piece in your book where you're talking about swimming with octopus and it's, it's magical. I know people do it with whales, sing with whales and um, there's something, is it? because they're underwater that because they're so different from us being above water, like I, have, maybe it's the fascination I have with frogs that they can do both. Um, I, I tend to like animals that can do both for some reason tend to be drawn to it. I love all animals, but like I'm weird that way, but is it something about them being underwater versus us? Cause we've got things with mermaids too, as humans, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, the octopuses are are intriguing in that regard because they're they are an ocean animal and they and they don't do well above water. Um, You know, it doesn't kill them immediately, and they can get some of them can get around a little bit. But but generally speaking, they're going to be in the water. But in the water, they're very oriented towards the bottom, and so they mostly do crawl or walk. But then they are quite capable of swimming up above the bottom at least briefly, and so they. They don't do both in the same sense as a frog, but um, you know there are some some just charming videos of octopuses walking on two legs uh, across the mm-hmm. bottom of the ocean floor, um, and then of course, often when you um, see um, see video of octopuses, you'll see them at some point in the video, uh, you know, swimming briefly. Uh, one of the things that's mm-hmm. always fascinated me. Um, and I know we have a wildlife photographer on the show, so not to criticize wildlife photographers, but um, many of the uh, very commonly available photographs of octopuses uh, show them silhouetted mid-water. Mm.
2: Um,
1: and if you're if you're familiar with octopuses and if you've played with them a lot, you can recognize that some of these are the natural swimming behavior of the octopuses and escape behavior, really. But it's as a photographer, it's very difficult to get in front of an octopus that's swimming that way because, of course, they're—they're—it's an escape behavior. They're avoiding you, and so the photographers awesome. often uh, sort of have a, a comrade, I think, carry them up and release them in the water, and then you get these really beautiful photographs. Of this animal in a completely unnatural pose, <laughs> and they're right. they're wonderfully Aww. lit and they're wonderfully silhouetted. And there's beautiful colors and play of light. All of that, the photographer, the artist trade, it's all it's all present and it's stunning. But to the animal behaviorist, you've caught an animal in a in a behavior <laughs> it would never do if someone hadn't been messing with it. Yeah, and I'm always much more intrigued by the by the growing number of photographs that are available now um taken by excellent underwater photographers who are um um you know making an effort not to capture the animal in some unnatural behavior but to mm-hmm. capture it doing what it would do if no one was watching and those I, are those are wonderful
0: I love that you're bringing this up because you know and it it's a why Nancy my mom ended up in in Africa too, is it's a difference between photographing a lion in the wild versus in the zoo. And we've seen artists paint, you know, animals from a zoo and act like they're a wildlife artists. And you're not, if you haven't seen them in the wild, unless, you know, we're, they're completely extinct, that's a different thing. And that's what we have to paint from, then that's what we have to paint from or photograph. But there's a huge difference and I think there's an importance of still photographing zoos and, and, and things like that. And, um, but, and, and there's play. And I know Margo, you, and you, you, you go to zoos and, and you see plants and you do that side of things. I haven't seen Margo swim with octopuses yet, but we're getting there with her. We're, <laughs> she'll be, you know, next time you come on the show, Dr. Sheol, she would have been floating in the water with octopuses and doing exactly what you're saying, but everyone has a specific niche. And it, it is an interesting thing because I just want to touch on this with birding. And um, there's something with that too, where birders go out and there's a, and you could go read multiple reports. Audubon goes and says, oh, this is how you do it responsibly. And then there's birding guides and treks and things going, and they'll play bird sounds. And Nancy and I have done this in, in a mistake of playing animal sounds to animals and then realizing we're playing the wrong sounds. Animals that an animal could be in distress. Is your bird call correct? What are you doing? Um, as photographers, I think this is a huge thing. And now we're in the Instagram world where everyone thinks they're a photographer with their cell phone. Uh oh, I'm going to go to rant. But <laughs> but <laughs> when you're out in nature, if you're in Yellowstone, back away from the bison. Let, let this animal have its home in space. And when you're going out in nature, why did I under, I understand learning bird calls and being outside in nature and hearing a bird call and learning that like, oh, that bird is here. I might not be able to see it, but I know that's a cardinal, right? I know this sound for you know. I've actually gone looking for a dog in a swamp thinking a dog was stuck in a swamp and it wasn't. It was a bird call. It was a rail. Anyway, so we won't wow. talk about that, but I did. Anyway, but if you're playing bird sounds to attract a bird to take a photo or you're making animals move for a photo, I think it sucks. I'm just saying, I think it's rude to su- go. I'm talking about going to people's houses. So, I, Dr. Schill, wouldn't you say that's kind of also part of that with photography is, and I want to go to Margo on this, but I, I want to go to you first. Shouldn't we yep. back off and let an animal be?
1: You, you know, it's very interesting because I, I, I dabbled, have dabbled in wildlife photography my, my whole life. And, um, you know, I will say there's been times as a photographer when I um, uh, well, and I also do science and science requires you to mm-hmm. to get your hands in there. Right. It's, yeah. It's, um, at, it, at its at its best, science is both observational and you don't want to leave an imprint on the animals. But it's also, um, you know, you tweak something to see what changes. And so there's a bit of, of getting your hands on and interacting. Mm-hmm. And um, I have at times either inadvertently or on purpose um, disturbed the animals I'm trying to photograph. Uh, and I've also at times had the animals I'm trying to photograph move me. Uh, so, you know, it, it does go both ways. Um, but one of the things I've realized, or at least for me, um, is, is that, you know, it's part of animals are part of the human world we live in, Uh, Mm. which is to say that uh, we're not, it's not like there's human society and then there's nature and we should leave well enough alone. It's that there's, there's one world and we all occupy Mm. it together. Uh, And we're, I, I don't, I don't foresee a world in which humans are able to leave nature alone, but I I do hope for a world in which, um, you know, we're able to leave room for nature.
0: Coexistence. Coexistence. So So part of it is like everything I'm talking about that I'm like, dude, no, no, don't, don't mess with them. At the same time, it is still a step towards coexistence, right? When people do things, it's still a step towards understanding and learning. Um, no matter what at the end of the day it's still unless you're like doing the selfie with a bison and holding your kid up which i've seen people do with elk which was stupid that's stupid but <laughs> you know what i mean like there's this the stupid people in parks like don't put yourself in harm's way with your kid and and that, you want to be safe line. you want to yeah. be safe
1: and you want the animal to be safe exactly
0: Both. that Both. that's a that's a thing and i think there's that line you know i'm i'm just weird on my own side but it's I think you I think you make a huge and, and very valid and, and perfect point of coexistence and Margot, going to you in nature photography what do you have to say about all this side of it because I know you get down with flowers and butterflies and and that kind of photography huh. how do you feel like are you gonna you know pick a flower off to take a photo what 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 is your role oh, never. as a yeah.
2: photographer you yeah. um on behalf of (laughs) some nature photographers and um, wildlife photographers, I've done both, and I've also done it in the zoo. But the common thing that I find um, in a really good nature photographer is they wait for the picture to show up. In other words, they don't go after the picture, they don't go after the animal, um, and there's a a kind of a communication between the photographer and the animal. And when I'm taking a picture of an animal, I just sit in awe and just wonder. And I I um, am very quiet and I don't move much and I just allow the animal to communicate with me. And when it's looking at me and it's sharing its soul with me that's when i take the shot whether it's in the uh, the zoo or whether it's um out in nature i you know i've um here in san diego there's a lot of wildlife along the shore you know the the seals and the um mm. um you know the bird life. Uh, I lived along a lake where we had swans and we had um, uh, blue heron, and I built a relationship with them. And they would actually come to me, and and I would just take the pictures. And and so there's something to be said about relationship uh, with what you're taking pictures of. And no, I would never take a. A flower off to take a picture. I, in <laughs> fact, I I I go slowly. Actually, when I'm out in a garden, even, and I look to where the light is shining perfectly, and it's almost like the flower standing out, saying, "Pick me, pick me." I mean, you take my picture, and that's what draws my eye to it. It's just like um, I could walk by a uh, hundred flowers and. One will just stand out, and the light will be perfect, and and it just shows all its beauty, um, and that's when I take the shot. Um, so I say patience and communication is huge in uh, being a photographer, especially in nature and wildlife. So
0: I I love that, um, and see you are yeah. the balance. I told you, Dr. Sheel, she's the balance of the show. <laughs> but that's isn't that that coexistence part that we can achieve in understanding animals and is that isn't that part of you writing the book many things under a rock like even what she's saying about the flowers and and you mentioned habitat i think that's the key thing too when we look at the different you know species is are we keeping up with the habitat cuz as we you know populate and you know when we think of marine life Are we having a gazillion boats doing the right things in certain parts of the water? You know what I mean? So habitat balance, all of that kind of thing we need to look at for the animals and yet coexist so that we do have that appreciation and understanding and enjoyment. Like you first brought up to at the beginning of the show.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's so true that, that many of, of, of us who, who spend time in the out of doors uh, have learned or, you know, in my case are continually relearning that the, um, be- because I'm, I'm not that bright, I have to be taught a lesson a lot of times um, that, you know, you, you have to wait, you have to let the moments come to you. Um, you you can't manufacture any of this stuff. You can't schedule it. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the things that I've, i I teach in a, Marine and environmental science program at Alaska mm. Pacific University. It's a very small school in in Anchorage, Alaska, and um, one of the things that I've I try to uh, make opportunities for for my students in whatever way I can is to spend to put in the time, just to put in the time because you have to get out into the field. Uh, in whatever measure that is, and sometimes some days for me, the best I can do is is uh, my commute to work uh, through the woods. But um, you know, all of all of nature is encountered not by not by dropping in to a place where the human presence is slightly uh, less overwhelming, but by being attentive to the minutes. And that's really the only way to see it um because because um you know it's, it we' our our world is full of nature. I mean some of some of you know I've seen some interesting nature in my own backyard. Um, and as I said uh, you know in the local areas and then also out in wild places like um, 60 feet underwater in Prince William Sound mm-hmm. or a thousand miles out the Aleutian chain or or in Africa and and all of it involves, Uh, having the time to be to be present Mm.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. i agree i agree and then i mean look how much you've been for the octopus right and so being present for them and that takes you know like you're saying obviously science comes into everything you're doing and and thank goodness for science and scientists um it, it just can i just put a thing on here for science um Science is always changing because the world is always changing. So isn't that kind of an interesting thing that we're in now with climate change? Even you know, global warming, climate change, whatever we all want to call it, things are changing. It's obvious, right? And we can all argue who, what, and why and where. But science is always going to be changing because the world is always changing. So science is whatever is happening now. And it could change two years from now, just like a virus, like the pandemic, right? The coronavirus is a perfect example of how things change, right? So I just want to say that for people that don't think science matters, I think science matters because it is actually almost like documenting history in a weird way. (laughs) Would you agree Mm -hmm. with that? Like for, it is like history and it's so important. And what you do as biologists and science you're giving us this you're spending the time i mean experiments and watching wildlife takes beyond well, hours
1: i don't like to think of sci- science as a virus but um
0: <laughs> but, but I, I brought that to know, home I, for people just to kind of that was that was a living thing we all went through that people can know yeah, yeah. right it changed no, i
1: appreciate it I, I think there's always more to learn and you know uh, some years ago. Um, uh, I encountered an argument about about the end of science that soon we'll know everything, but it's amazing how much new we know now that we didn't know then. And and I think of science as a way of exploring and um, mm-hmm. learning and encountering. Um, and and to me, it's it's an important way of seeing the world.
0: Mm. And octopuses. When you think about the study of octopuses, how much has been done in history? And then for you to write this book and study them so much, swim with them, um, you know, how much have we had in the past when you were putting this together that you could go into with research? I know you've got a, you know, bibliography and everything in the back, but um, how much has science done in documentation of octopuses up to now that you, you, I mean, we're learning more now, right? On them, yeah. One of the most. I just want to say, fish. I know that they're cold-blooded or whatever people say, but I think they have feelings. I think they feel when a hook goes into them when we put them back in the water. I'm just saying. Don't tell anybody I said that. Sorry.
1: (laughs) One of the most exciting ways we've been able to um, to study octopuses or or get our data about octopuses has simply been to put uh, cameras down on the seafloor. And turn them on to record, and then swim away. And uh, you know, we did this. uh, There was this unique. There is this unique environment uh, in in Australia, south of Sydney, uh, that we've nicknamed Octopolis, that really allowed us to do this because this is a relatively small area that can be caught. You know, with a stationary camera in which there are uh, many octopuses, up to 16 octopuses or so can be there at one time. And you're talking about how things are changing and the world is changing and the ability to learn about the world is changing. One Mm -hmm. of the things that made this possible is that we were able to use small affordable underwater cameras. And 20 or 30 years ago, these cameras didn't exist. And underwater cameras, mm-hmm. big thing that um, you know, couldn't run for very long without power and, and so on and so forth. And nowadays we have small affordable cameras that can record for two or four hours at a time. And so what we did is we just took these cameras down at dawn, set them up, uh, swam away, came back about when the battery would die and swapped them out with another set of cameras. Uh, and did that throughout the day. And then we were able to sort of try and record or observe, if you will, entire days of these uh, animals at the bottom of the sea. And um, so a lot of my time spent with octopuses in in this one way was time watching them on video, but they're doing what they do without any people present. And so, because there's so many animals there at one time, we were able to observe them interacting. And um so as a result of that, we discovered uh, behaviors that had never been documented before uh, with octopuses. And so it's been it's been very exciting as a as a scientist to um document things that have never been seen before. Um, you know, and that that was my study down in Australia. But up in Alaska, it unfolded in a very different way. Uh, where I was able to document a species of octopus that's not uncommon up here, but no one had ever noticed it before. And so, you know, as I said, there's something about science that is a, a form of explore, exploration. And I was very privileged privileged to be able to, um, you know, find new things that, uh, or at least call attention to and 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 write about new things that had never been um, never been noticed before.
0: And didn't you also work with like you've, here we've got technology right where you can do it. I mean, even if you know fans of David Attenborough, right? A lot of the photographers, it's it is exactly what you're saying, but it is hours of footage. So I'm going to say all of you photographers and scientists, biologists, you know, even botanists. A lot of your you've got the biggest popcorn bill than anybody in the world (laughs) (laughs) because they're watching movies all day long watching, but it's like this, uh, it's magical. And it's a lot of, you know, work because you can't just speed through really because you could miss that one thing that's different, that one leg movement or something really small. So it's uh, such attention to detail with the work that you do, which I bow down to big time, but isn't it also looking at, um, the behavior that others have seen through the years the indigenous people of Alaska Africa when when you were there too about you know people who also hunt uh for for food we're not time trophy hunting but for food also understand the wildlife because they've been watching them to be able to understand how to to you know hunt them so has that helped as well
1: yeah yeah of course there's um you know, as, as a scientist, you, you try, as a field scientist, you try and have your time in the field. But, um, you know, it's a it's a common remark, I think, by um, uh, Alaska Natives and First Nations people who, who um, uh, live out in the communities. It's a common observation of them that the scientists kind of drop in for a couple of days or a week and then are off back again at their universities. And so, you know, there are levels of this that vary from um, not getting out at all uh, to to being out there intermittently to um, to sort of sure. obtaining your livelihood from this. And I think, I think our, you know, farmers will have the same sort of reaction of, of, Oh, he thinks he's in the field, but you know, the honest truth is I live in a city. Um, and uh, you know, when I can get out, I, it, it always takes effort and the expenditure of money And, um, you know, there's a a lot of logistics involved in getting someone like me out into the field to do my sampling. Mm -hmm. And I'm fully aware that, you know, where I go that seems exotic and remote to me uh, or fascinating and and distant from, um, you know, my city life where I can do my field work is a place where other people live. And they're there all the time. And if you're there all the time, of course, you see things that you would never see. If you drop in intermittently, but one of the joys of the underwater world, of course, is that, is that, um, you know, prior to the advent of scuba, people just didn't get underwater that much or for that long, because we were all limited by our breath hold abilities. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, there are communities that, and, and ancient practices that involved breath hold diving. Uh, you know, with a skill level and a, and a degree of proficiency that that I've never gotten close to emulating in my life. But um, scuba and underwater cameras and deep sea diving equipment and all of that kind of stuff opens up uh, ways of seeing that underwater world that absolutely have not been available um, to uh, non technological societies. Um, they they definitely are working. In and on the oceans, but because everything has to be done with, um, uh, you know, non-technological means or, or, or uh, more limited technological means, you know, pulling things up on hook and line or in traps mm-hmm. uh, and breath hold diving, then they're seeing the world in a in a, a more of a reaching in and pulling out sort of way. And our our modern marine biology technology can let us drop down and sit with it for a little bit. This that, is
0: fascinating.
1: Doing that with yeah. small cameras in in um, some of these places where I've been able to observe octopuses has just been just been really fascinating.
0: You know, this is fascinating to me. Just going back, you know, with Nancy, my mom's um, history of you know working with Joy Adamson and tracking they were tracking um, Penny the leopard. And you're—they were tracking with radio technology and all of this kind of thing. Whereas now, I mean, this was in the 70s. Now look how it's changed, right? And then obviously the indigenous people knew things too, and so it was like field and and so much time, right? And now, like you're saying through technology, I think through technology, like let's go back to the birding, right? Now, as photographers, you can have longer lenses. So you are not encroaching on territory. You can zoom in instead of stepping in to wildlife, which is such a huge thing. I'm so glad you're on the show with this because it's so, I I want people to understand like things are better and science is not actually getting in the way of animals at all. I think climate change is more of that. Um, But I do want to ask you this, go back to this one thing I was kidding about, but I, I do, I really do feel like underwater animals do have feelings and emotion and this whole thing about cold-blooded creatures doesn't mean they have a cold heart i just don't i i just can't really believe it as a human being as someone who feels things and watch and and observes animals i i just have this i mean i've watched sharks in south africa and stuff it, it's just I i i believe the animals do care about their babies underwater. Maybe I know there's mammals versus fish and everything, but um, I just, I just, I mean, I can be completely wrong and I know maybe one day I'll be right a hundred years from now, but do you think that they feel things like what we do as humans? Yeah,
1: certainly I think um, octopuses do have some level of inner experience and awareness of themselves. I mean, I have no doubts, right? Um, you know, for example, an octopus knows the difference between being hungry and so going to search for food and being afraid and so hiding or camouflaging. And, you know, those aren't alternative activities, but, but the octopus is aware of what it's doing, right? It has to be. Mm-hmm. And so um, I don't think that uh, that's too surprising. And my my book is full of accounts of you know many things under a rock is just full of accounts of these kinds of awareness because I really couldn't write an account of octopus lives without telling those kinds of stories. So yeah, I I totally agree with you.
2: Mm. And okay. Yeah, so you talk about um. Oh, sorry. No, go you, ahead. You talk about um, in the book about um them uh, how they build their homes and and how they camouflage themselves uh, using shells and things and and also about them using tools that also shows intelligence um in a in a higher level can you talk a little bit about that Mm
1: -hmm. yeah one of the interesting um octopuses have sort of been known tool users for a little bit but one of the more interesting developments has been um, finding that octopuses will will gather material out of the bottom of their of their den, um, which is part of sort of a normal den cleaning uh, behavior. But then will orient that material and and aim it, and uh, they appear to be throwing it at their neighbors as a way to mediate interactions and. Um, you know, this is fascinating because mm-hmm. it takes that tool use from sort of, you know, uh, a relatively low level of gathering things, pushing things around and moving things and adjusting things in order to make a den to a, a larger level of uh, manipulating the the tool, uh, whatever they're going to throw, uh, and orienting it and directing it at a con specific in order to uh, hopefully interrupt or alter the conspecifics behavior. And there's relatively few animals that are known to have a way to throw things at conspecifics uh, in order to change uh, the conspecifics behavior. And most of those those animals that we know of are are basically the, the social mammals. And to see this same behavior show up in, in The Octopus, I think, shows that these abilities, these this ability to anticipate where something is going to go and this ability to direct your own motions to change the behavior of, of another individual are maybe not as as rare in the animal world as we sometimes like to pretend.
0: That's amazing, isn't mm-hmm. it? When you, when you watch it, that. It is thing.
1: pretty incredible, yeah.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Shiel.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a delight.